Well, good morning. If you would, please turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis has some, um, some fairly large narrative sections, and we've been breaking it up into pieces. Chapters 1 through 11. What would we give a, a, as a good name for 1 through 11 in Genesis? Creation to flood. So the flood ends um, ends a little bit before that, but it's very much a part of the controlling narrative of the thing, right? Uh, it's a very large section of it. You've got this. You could say this is first things. Like what's what's some major things that set up the world order? Well, first of all, God set up the world order by creating the earth. Um, then you've got, of course, the flood, and you've got the whole Babel incident, um, and you've got genealogies talking about how the earth is is being dealt with and, and being really populated. All right. So it's a it's a thing of it's setting up some major events in the in the very and really in the life of the world. Uh, Twelve through twenty three is about. Yes, thank you, Abraham. It is about Abram who becomes Abraham. And what is so special about Abraham? What's that? He's the father of the faith. God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham believed that, that, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? And so he becomes, ultimately, the father of the righteous. And you don't know it here, necessarily, but the promise made here goes all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, and ultimately, into eternity. So, very important, starting there in chapter 12. His son's name was... Isaac. And you might recall one of the problems with Abraham is that he has no heirs for most of his life. And this becomes an issue. Uh, But God promises him that you will have children like the stars of the sky, or you will have children like the dust of the earth. Both of those are used. Uh, he, He doesn't directly have that many. He has Isaac. And there is also Ishmael, but the promise is meant to go through Isaac. After Isaac comes who? Who is he the father of? Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob is clearly the more important of the two. It is not through Ishmael that God's promise will be fulfilled. It is not through Esau that God's promise will be fulfilled. Isaac is chosen. Jacob is chosen. Now, Jacob is renamed Israel. And if we think of the nation, Israel, they're not the Abrahamites, though that would be appropriate. Right? Uh, They are not the Isaacites, though that would be fine. They are the Israelites. Because ultimately, uh, out of Jacob comes 12 sons. Be interesting. Uh, we'll, We'll. his, that changes over time, and not just in the normal way of birthing. Uh, we'll get into that today as he adopts some children as his own. So he becomes Israel, and this is the namesake, that the nation, 
the children of Abraham would be called the Israelites. And finally, starting in chapter 37, who are we focusing on? Focusing on Joseph. And as we've discussed, there's a lot of overlap, or at least some overlap, in, in a lot of these. I mean, when the Isaac narrative starts, Abraham is still alive. But the focus is on Isaac. And when the Jacob narrative starts, Isaac is still alive. When the Joseph narrative starts, Israel is still alive. And he will be alive until the very end of the book. But he is not the focus. Joseph becomes the focus in chapter 37. So, if you would please, turn to that chapter. Um, not to bog us down, but 1 through 11 too, I think marriage is a big thing that happened there. Like That's true. He does. Man, women will be joined together and not stay with their father and mother, but Right, which has societal, societally very significant ramifications. Right, if you mess with that, then you ultimately mess with the order that God has created from the beginning. Right, very important cultural note. And speaking of the offspring of marriage, let's talk about Joseph. Joseph. Uh, who is he the son of, specifically? Do we know? Rachel. Rachel. He's the son of, son of Rachel. Was he the only son of Rachel? No. Who was the other? Benjamin. But he's not alive yet. He, he doesn't exist when we get to chapter 37. Or at least, I don't believe so. Because right? uh, Isaac taught... Um, it, Israel talks about Joseph as his, his son in his old, old age and is very important to him. Uh, Benjamin becomes a, a later thing. So it starts off, the Joseph narrative starts off with Joseph having issues with his brothers. All right? and so if you look in uh, chapter 37, you've got Joseph's dreams. All right? And you might recall the dreams. What were they? Go ahead. Okay, stars bowing. What what other celestial objects were there? Moon and sun and the stars all bowing to one star, and that one star was Joseph. The other image? Sheaths of, of wheat, right? And all the suns, that one, if I recall correctly, doesn't have Israel in it. This is his father, Jacob, right? It's just the, his brothers. And they're all there, and his gets really big, and those worship, or they, those sheaths bow down to Joseph. Okay, so um, what do you think? Yeah, but you've, for all of you who have, have had siblings, what do you think is going to be the natural reaction of siblings when there's brother or sister tells them, hey, I had a dream and you worship me. You, you, you bow down in obedience to me. All right. Naturally, they're going to get really angry. Uh, so let's go and just read a little bit out of chapter 37. In verse 18, 
They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. It's good, because Joseph needs to live through this. Everyone wants to kill Joseph except for Reuben. And so Reuben, who does not, who's from the story, is still mad at Joseph. He also had to bow down to Joseph in the dreams. But he's not going to go so far as to say, we should kill him. He's like, no, let's just throw him in the pit. And then he's in his mind, as it says here, I'll go back later, get him out of the pit, and restore him to his father. Now, another interesting uh, story point about this is they see... Joseph coming from afar off. All right? How do you think they recognize Joseph coming from afar off? He's got a special coat, right? So his father gives him a special coat, a coat of many colors, so he's not going to look like anyone else. And so they see him really far off. Oh, here's this. Wow, look at all those colors. That must be Joseph. Now's our chance. Let's kill this guy. So it's an interesting piece to the story, I think. Now, uh, does Reuben successfully save Joseph? From death, yes. But he gets sold into slavery. Right? And that's, this is when Joseph's life starts, at least from a human perspective, going downhill. Now, the next chapter, as sometimes happens in Genesis, is a, a zag. Right? Here's Joseph sold into slavery Next chapter, what's going to happen to Joseph? Too bad. We're not going to talk about Joseph. We're going to talk about Judah and Tamar. Yeah? Interesting that he's sold to a band of Ishmaelites. Yes. These are his family, distant cousins, right? And not even all that distant. And And I wonder, you know, how many Ishmaelites could there be at this point? Right? I mean, it's not like there's thousands of Ishmaelites. This is his great uncle. Dad. Uncle. Great. Dad. Grandpa. Yeah. Yeah, it's his great uncle. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not half uncle. You're right. It would be his great half uncle. It is confusing. So it's not like there's a ton of time and we have time for there to be, oh, here's 5,000 Ishmaelites and, and here's a small band of the, that large people group. Yes, Chip? This is the only time a parent has shown special favoritism toward one of their children at the expense of the others and the others got jealous. That's... that's well, that's that's sort of true. It, it, it Jacob and Esau were messed up. Yeah, yeah. The jealousy is more active here. And remember the Jacob and Esau story. Um, you know, Isaac really loved Esau, not Jacob. But in that case, it's as much of the mother's jealousy and machinations as it is Jacob's and all of that. So, so yeah. I mean, you can you 
expand quickly, people, but, you know, Don Epler, they had two kids, but they have 15 grandkids. If all of them had 15 grandkids. Yeah. yeah. You grow pretty quick. But. Yeah. And we know, you know, back in the olden days, people tended to have a lot more children. So that was, you know, how many of our grandparents had like 12 siblings? That's true, too. Jim you know. said, and more wives, too. True, right? So, but 38 is a departure. All right, we're going to wait. And why is this here? I have no idea. Um, you'll probably remember the story. The basic story is uh, Judah has a son, and he takes a wife named Tamar. He dies, because he's wicked, before she has a child. So, Onan, I believe is his name, another son is said, okay, now go take her as a wife so she can have children. He sins, and he is killed too. Now, we, so far, we don't have the Mosaic Law, where later on in the Mosaic Law, there are actual statutes about how if an older brother has a wife who dies without children so that his name can be preserved, a younger brother will marry the wife. Right? So that's, that's a rule, but that's later. All right? Here, they're following this rule, not based on the Mosaic Law, which has not yet happened. And so that's ultimately culturally where this is coming from. And so you've got then a third son that is too young at this point. And Judah says to Tamar, as soon as he's old enough, then he can marry him. But he had no intention of doing that. As it turns out, as the text itself says, he has no intention of doing that. He gets old enough. He doesn't marry that child to Tamar. All right. And so then what happens? Judah goes on a trip. Tamar disguises herself, goes on that, goes essentially to meet him on the trip. He thinks she is a prostitute. She has hidden her face. He thinks she is a prostitute. They have sex. She gets pregnant. All right? And she takes, if I recall, three things rope, signet, staff, if I recall correctly, from Judah that would identify him. And she leaves without him knowing. All right, and keeps that. Well, she's pregnant at this point. And so when ultimately, um, it's three months later, I believe the text says, whenever it's obviously like she's pregnant, she did something wrong. All right? And at that point, she's accused of this by Judah. And what does she do? She produces the three things and says, you want to know who the father is? the owner of these three things. And at that point, Judah and presumably those all around would go, ah, this is Judah. All right, so this is ultimately Judah's child. Why did she do this? Because Judah said that she would, he would give her as a husband her, his youngest son. Didn't happen. So she took matters into her own hands. It's a mess. It's a really messy story where the story starts off as obviously it's Judas' sin, right? When he does this, because he's supposed to, well, the sons of Judas', Judas sin, two of them who are killed. Then it's Judas' sin. Then it's her going out and being a prostitute or acting like one, though it doesn't call her a sinner at that point. 
coming back. They claim she's a sinner. And then she says, nope. These are, this is Judah's child. And Judah goes, okay, the fault is mine. It's an interesting story. It's obviously a very different culture than ours, where, I mean, it's, if you read the text, it's fairly plain, which is, for the males at the time, what's the problem with going into a prostitute? Apparently, there's no issue with this. Apparently. Because he is not condemned for that in any way. The, the sin of Judah, in this case, is about not following that cultural custom, which is making sure that she is married and gets to have children. That's the main sin there. Very different than we would, than we would approach things. Very much of a more patriarchal type approach to things. The behavior of women is more constrained than the behavior of men. And so that's essentially chapter 8. Yeah. There's another violation of evidently the cultural rule mm-hmm. that Judah says to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. Where did that tradition come from? And he was punished by know. God for not doing it. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. Right, This is the first instance of it. It gets, it gets put into the law under Moses. But at this point, this is, if I recall correctly, the first instance of this practice in the Old Testament, which is extremely odd for us. But yeah, what were you going to say? I, know, I think your ancestry really doesn't define you whatsoever, right? Because that's the line that David and Christ came through, along, mm-hmm. which is a terrible thing, uh, along with Rahab the harlot and mm-hmm. Ruth, who was Moabitess with the lot nonsense, yeah, all kind of a big mess, but. David is Christ. That is is fantastic news. Yeah, you're right. Don't be be defined by your father or your grandfather or any of them. Absolutely right. So that's the Judah and Tamar incident. And then it's, as far as I know, is never mentioned again. Maybe later. Who knows? As far as I know, it's never mentioned again. At this point, we get back to the Joseph narrative, and we will stay with the Joseph narrative ultimately till the end. So in chapter 39, you've got Joseph, who was sold to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt, and at that point, Joseph is lost to the brothers. Right? Last they saw him, he was given to some Ishmaelites, and now Joseph is just way off. All right? Later on in the story, we will find that the brothers just basically assume he died. That, w- that was their assumption. It's, we haven't seen him in so long, he must be dead. Turns out to not be the case because what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God intended through this to deliver the entire family. Because God had promised to Abraham that he would have a great deal of descendants. And so that means the line of Israel needed to be kept alive. But it's not just Israel through Joseph. It ends up being Israel and all of his children. So the first thing is, Joseph is sold to a man named Potiphar. Now, if you would, let's read a little bit in chapter 39. Essentially, the story is, Joseph becomes, um, is faithful, is a good person, all right, good guy, uh, and God blesses him. And he gets put over essentially everything in Potiphar's house, except for 
Potiphar's wife. Verse 6, So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, that would be Potiphar, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And so he's just... It's all you, Joseph. Take it over. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife." How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, when she says, lie with me, this is what we call, obviously, a euphemism. It's a way of saying, please come into my bed and have sex with me. That's a euphemism. So instead, it's lie with me. Now, there's something here which we should really compare this to, to David and the David and Bathsheba incident, right? Where in this case David was was the one who sinned, alright? And in this case Joseph was the one who was righteous. Now, as we've discussed with the David incident often, alright, did David sin against Uriah? Absolutely. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Absolutely. Um, but ultimately it ends with the final judgment and the final most gracious or, or most heinous sin being against God. Right? Same thing here. Note how he begins the discussion. He doesn't begin it with a discussion of sin against God. He begins it with a discussion of her husband. All right? Your husband has given me everything. So, I mean, the implication, I, I, I owe him everything. Right? He's given me everything. He's given me power over everything except for you. All right. Now, why would I lie with you and then sin against God? All right. And so it starts with that human obligation there. But there's obviously a clear recognition in Joseph's mind that this human obligation implies something that would ultimately, if you broke it, be a sin against God. And I think this is an interesting case in both of these. In that, if you think about your human relationships, all right, there are human relationships that we have that basically set up things that are right and wrong for us. Right? In this particular case, it's, well, he has basically put me in charge of everything, and if I sin against him, then I'm ultimately sinning against God. All right? I think it's just an interesting thought for us to think through our relationships in our life and think through and go, okay, what relationships has God put in our life that if we do something wrong in those relationships, it's actually a sin against him. All right, if we are, this is a little bit easier in family. Like, for example, we are not supposed to speak ill of our, we're not supposed to sin against our parents, right? God gave us our parents. We are supposed to honor our parents. If you dishonor your parents, that is a sin against God. Right? God put us in human relationships. Here, God put Joseph in a human relationship here and blessed him in this situation. And Joseph recognizes in this situation, this is a sin against Potiphar. Right? And therefore, a sin against God. 
And once again, going to the sexual ethics side of things, which were the very last chapter, notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say, I can't commit adultery. That would be a sin. Though I, I assume he believes that. That's not where the discussion is. The discussion is, interestingly enough, I can't do this to Potiphar. Because if I do this to Potiphar, this is a sin against God. Right? Which is not where we would go. Right? Cultures change, and also God's revelation progressively revealed more. And so our natural thing would be to say just generally, it doesn't matter about the human relationship with the other person, that's adultery and then for it is wrong. All right. So we would certainly go there. But at this point in time, there was apparently less revealed related to the relationship between men and women, especially unmarried men and women. So that for Judah, apparently it was okay to go into a prostitute. Apparently. Here, what's the problem? Potiphar put me in this place. It's a sin against God because of that for me to lie with you. Not saying that just the adultery thing would not have been seen as wrong, but that's not how the, the text presents it. Once again, it's from a different, very different culture. It's more patriarchal. It's more of a focus on the man, the head of the household, than it is uh, than we would in our culture, and rightly so. I mean, Christianity, from a theological perspective, changes these relationships a great deal. All right? Because ultimately in Christ, there is no man and woman. All right? So a lot of these relationships naturally change as God reveals more and more. But at this point, we're dealing with a different culture. And it's good to recognize that when we do our reading. You look like you're about to say something, Bill. Anything? Me? Yeah. I was thinking, I think this came after, but love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. So if he takes his wife, he's not loving his neighbor as himself. No. And there would be other sins involved too, but you can, you can simplify it and bring it all the way back and say, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, that'll take care of all the sins that you might do to your neighbor. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Absolutely right. But I don't know that they have that yet. I don't believe so. But you do at least see in this, you, you do see that notion at the very least. So maybe not explicitly revealed, but you certainly see it in the story. Well, we know where the story goes, I think. If you don't, I will tell you. Um, Potter, well, basically, after repeated advances, and Joseph continues to say no, Potiphar's wife eventually lies and tells Potiphar that Joseph actually tried to take advantage of her, right? which, of course, is false. Joseph gets very angry, gets him thrown in jail. And that gets us to chapter 40, where Joseph has to interpret two prisoners' dreams. So jo- Joseph... Right? He goes to Potiphar's house, the Lord blesses him, and he becomes more powerful. Here he goes to uh, this prison. And what, is, what happens? Well, Joseph is a 
supreme example of righteousness, continues to be so, despite the fact that everything wrong happens to Joseph. He goes to prison, but God blesses him, and he goes up in rank within the prisoners, within the prison, and he meets two prisoners, both of which have been put in the prison by the Pharaoh. Uh, That would be his baker and his wine taster. Right? Important people, because um, you don't want to, you know, make sure Pharaoh's poisoned, and so you get, you know, have have a a, a wine bearer who can carry that and, and maybe taste some things, make sure he didn't die. That's a you know common thing. So anyway, they're in, they're in prison and they have dreams, and we have Joseph, who was the dreamer, is now going to become the one who interprets the dreams. And so the baker has a dream. The cupbearer has a dream, and, and Joseph interprets and says, Baker, I see your dream, and you're going to die. Um, cupbearer, I understand your dream. God has given me the interpretation of that, and you are going to live. And that is what happens. And, of course, Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you get out of here, please remember me. Which, of course, the cupbearer does not immediately do. When you get to the next chapter, you're you're ultimately going to have uh, Pharaoh having dreams. And so Pharaoh has dreams. No one can interpret these dreams. But the cupbearer remembers, you know, I had a dream. And there was this fellow in prison with me. And uh, he was able to interpret the dream. So maybe he can interpret your dream too. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh's dreams, uh, they're, they're two dreams, but they are ultimately of the same meaning. All right. Remember these seven. Once again, we're dealing with grain stalks. There's that same theme. The seven grain stalks. There's seven fat grain stalks. All right. And then there's seven thin grain stalks, and these grain stalks take over the other grain stalks. All right. So fat, healthy grain stalks, super thin, emaciated grain stalks. Grain stalks, or is it corn? I believe it's grain. Uh, basically eat those other ones. And so the, you have seven, plenty, seven of, of famine. Then you've got cows, where you have seven fat cows. And then you have seven skinny cows. And the seven skinny cows eat the seven fat cows, yet don't get fat. They stay skinny. And so no one can interpret this, but Daniel, excuse me, not Daniel, that's a different interpreter of dreams. Uh, Joseph says, hey, I, you had two dreams. These are the same dream. You will have seven years plenty. Then you will have seven years of famine. So you need to prepare for that, essentially, is the notion. And, of course, um, who better to help prepare for that except Joseph himself? And so Joseph, once again, gets raised up. Now, instead of being the highest person in Potiphar's household, he is now the highest person in all of Egypt. All right? And so this is ultimately how God will save this line of people. Yes, Lydia? Um, Wasn't he like the highest person other than the Pharaoh? That's right. Pharaoh puts him... He does not become Pharaoh, but the Pharaoh puts him in charge of... You take care of all of this. And so for seven years, he basically keeps grain, right? And starts stockpiling grain. Then when the seven years are up, they can start using that grain because they can no longer grow anything. And so, yeah. 
So Joseph rises to power. Chapter 42, we find that the famine is larger than Egypt itself. And so what happens is Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. Right? Now Joseph's brothers, not all of his brothers, the brother that Joseph does not know, Benjamin, does not go. Uh, I, uh, Israel is very attached to, 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 to Benjamin. He was really attached to Joseph too, but Joseph died as far as he was concerned. Uh, because, well, we didn't say this part of the story, but the brothers basically said, we found Joseph's many-colored cloak, and they put blood on it, and basically made Israel think that Joseph was dead. And so he's, he's working on the assumption, Joseph is dead. Now here's his new youngest son, also the child of Rachel, and he's like, uh-uh, I'm keeping him here. All the rest of you guys are expendable. You can go to Egypt. Uh, it doesn't quite say it that way, but that's clearly, that's a, that's a subtext. I mean, he loves, he loves Benjamin and will not part with him at this point. So jo- Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph at all. All right? Um, I mean, at this point, Joseph has aged some. Joseph is also probably dressed a great deal differently. All right? He might be shaven. They're all bearded. For whatever reason, probably many reasons, they don't recognize him. Now, Joseph recognizes them and essentially um, choose to test them. All right? And he asks them about his father, or, or their father, because it's not my father. I mean, he's pretending to be somebody else. Asked about... Their, fa- their father and any other siblings. And at this point, he finds out about Benjamin. All right? And he also finds out his father's life. All right? Now, during these episodes, sometimes he gets, he gets really emotional. It says in this text, and sometimes he has to just like abruptly leave the room, just go weep for a while, clean up his face, and go back out. Because you see in this, uh, Joseph is very smart and very tricky. Because he's going to spend a good bit of time here um, manipulating his brothers. He's going to be tricking them. And because ultimately, I mean, what does Joseph want? I mean, he wants his dad. He wants to see his dad. And then he's, once he finds out about Benjamin, he's like, I want to see Benjamin. All right. And so he's going to manipulate them. And so they go down to buy food in Egypt because Egypt is the only place that has food because of Joseph. So they go to buy food. And Joseph gives them the food, but then commands that their money be put back in their sacks, which when they leave and find out, they're kind of freaked out about because they now have gotten free food. And so this, this this kind of bothers them. So... What do they do? You remember what happens next? Eventually, run out of food, and they got to go back. All right, they go back, and what happens? They get more food, but what does Joseph do this time? He wants Benjamin. All right, and so he's like, you know what? I'll let you go back, but not you. He keeps Simon. He's like. If you want Simon back, you need to bring Benjamin. And so what happens is they go back, and, um, and immediately Israel goes, yes, let's send Benjamin. No, it's not what he does. He's like, no, Benjamin's my favorite. Not going to do it. All right? Now, ultimately, right, 
ultimately, the brothers go back to Egypt. The brothers go back to Egypt, and they're like, okay, here's the deal. We don't... Israel, Jacob, is scared of losing Benjamin. But they do ultimately bring Benjamin down there, right? And what does Jacob do? He continues with his trickery somewhat, but eventually he breaks down, right? And this happens ultimately when you get to chapter 44, all right? Chapter 44, well, chapter 43, the brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin. They eat at Joseph's house, and Joseph tests them again. So we're not quite ready to... um, He's not quite ready to, to, to reveal his hand, all right, in, in chapter 44. Joseph tests his brothers, and he falsely accuses Benjamin. Because not only does he put money in Benjamin's sack, he puts his silver, special silver cup in Benjamin's sack. His cup of divination is what it calls it in the text. Puts that in his sack. And Benjamin and them start going away. But the guards catch up, right? And the guards catch up, and they and the Israelite boys are like, "We didn't steal your stuff. Here, check our stuff. If anyone stole your stuff, then they'll be they'll be guilty." And so they open all the sacks from the oldest to the youngest. Benjamin, uh oh, has the cup. So they all go back, and then in ultimately in chapter forty-five, Joseph reveals himself to his brother, his brothers. All right. Benjamin comes back. They all essentially, um, they, they are very afraid. They, Jacob has already said, if Benjamin doesn't, co- if Benjamin doesn't come back, I'm just going to basically go, I'm going to die in sadness. All right. I'm going to die in sadness if Benjamin doesn't come back. Oh, well, they, because of what, has been, what Benjamin has theoretically done, they all go back. Joseph does finally reveal himself to his brothers and tell them, essentially at that point, I'm not mad at you. God has put me in this place to preserve you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has put me in this place to preserve you. Bring back my father. Because I will basically take care of all of you because I am super powerful. I will take care of all of you and you will all survive this famine. And so that that happens in chapter 45. Uh, And in chapter 46, the family goes to live in Goshen, in Egypt. And on the way, uh, God speaks to Jacob, Beersheba, about this and says, Yes, you will go, but you will also ultimately come back. In 47, Jacob meets Pharaoh and his sons are put in charge of Pharaoh's flocks. And so um, the, the Israelites... All right. The Israelites in this case, which are, you know, 12 sons. Um, once again, not a large group of people. Uh, they're shepherds. And so Pharaoh says, okay, you can go live in Goshen. And ultimately, they get in charge. They get put in charge of Pharaoh's flock. And that's essentially the story. That's how they get down. That's how they ultimately get down to Egypt. Uh, I want to look, though, at chapter 48. 
All right. Uh, you can go and turn there. 49, you've got a large, uh, fairly large prophecy where Jacob goes through some of, uh, basically for all of the sons and gives prophecies about all of them. And then in chapter 50, um, Joseph buries Jacob in Israel. Big entourage takes the, the dead Jacob to Israel and, and buries him there because that's where he wants to be buried. Jo- um, Joseph also wants to be buried in Israel eventually, but he doesn't at this point. He actually is going to be buried in Egypt now. But anyway, let's go to chapter 48. And in my Bible, we've got Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. All right? Ephraim and Manasseh are not children of Jacob, right? Children of Joseph, right? So these were born of an Egyptian wife in Egypt. Let's, be, let's read. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob, Jacob said, so it switches here between Israel and Jacob. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. This is uh, the original name of Bethel. At Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. It's an interesting little adoption thing that goes on here where Jacob says, I'm basically, I'm making them, even though they aren't, I am making your two sons my full sons. Because the, the tribes in Israel, that we will later find in history, they weren't named after the sons of the sons of Israel. They were named after the sons of Israel. Well, there is a tribe of Manasseh and there's a tribe of Ephraim. All right? And this comes from this spot where Israel says, they're not your sons now, they're my sons. But their children, you can consider them your sons, essentially. And so this is the story about how Manasseh and Ephraim become, essentially, tribes of Israel without being the children of Israel. It's, it's an adoption that happens at this point. So here's the text for that. I thought that was certainly worth, certainly worth pointing out. Now, something else that happens here, which I assume is why this a certain thing happens later in history, is that Manasseh, who is the older, and Ephraim, who is the younger, all right, uh, they are not blessed in accordance with their age, which is something we've already seen happen. Right? So, the scene is Joseph takes his sons and puts Manasseh on the left of him and Ephraim on the right of him. That would put Manasseh on the right of Jacob. And so if he were to lay the hands on the two children, Jacob's right hand, right, right being the more, more powerful, you know, that would be the greater blessing. The right hand would go on Manasseh, and the left hand would go on Ephraim. Jacob switches arms unexpectedly, right? and I would assume uncomfortably. But he switches his arms, and Joseph's like, no, no, no. And, and Jacob's like, yeah. This is what's supposed to happen. And so Ephraim is actually given a bigger blessing than Manasseh. And I assume, also, um, 
This would also explain why often in later Israelite history, the Israelite kingdom of the north is never called Manasseh. But it is called Ephraim. All right? Because, well, it's an interesting thing. Who was, who was jo- Jacob's favorite son? It was Joseph. All right? And of his favorite son, the most blessed of his favorite sons now becomes like his most favorite son. Right? And so Ephraim ultimately gets that superior blessing. And then later on, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel often being called Ephraim. I, I assume that that is ultimately the explanation for that. Uh, I haven't seen confirmation, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah? The, I'm just seeing the shadow of Christ in this situation, you know, for sure. But also the role of the wicked um, being jealous. Yeah. You know, like, well, this dream, <laughs> you dreamer, this is never going to happen. And then, okay, well, we'll just sell you. Same thing. You'll be gone. Yeah. Not knowing that their action is what caused the dream to come true. You know, God had purposed that they would do that. That there is no Joseph becoming second in command of Egypt unless he was sold to the Ishmaelites who later sold him to Potiphar. Yeah. And and you know, similarly the role of the deceiver, you know, he he's jealous of Jesus. Says, I'll just kill him. And does he know that by killing him, you're actually accomplishing what God wants? Yeah. Amen. There's a lot of important theology that's established here. God and his providence works around evil. All right? Doesn't work around. God and his providence will use evil acts to accomplish what he wants. All right? And... Without a doubt, the act of the brothers of Joseph is an evil act. And God used it for good. And there's a lot in Joseph that we can take as an example, right? What was, what was, what was the character of Joseph throughout this entire story? All right? He is righteous in evil times and in good times. He's always depending on God. And when he talks about you know, him interpreting visions, he's always going back to God on this. God is the interpreter of visions through him. So Joseph is the supreme, it's a supreme example of character. And really is a very good image of Jesus, right? Because what did Jesus do? He died and rose from the dead. What did Joseph do? He died, and as far as his brothers are concerned, he died and rose from the dead. All right? From a big story arc perspective, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Always righteous. Evil things happen to him. Always righteous. Always faithful. And though he dies, he rises again in the end. And what happens? He reigns. As did Joseph. All right? And who was more powerful than Joseph? Just Pharaoh. All right? Who puts Jesus in charge? God the Father. The whole image 
fits, all right? Totally the whole image fits. Um, the New Testament doesn't ever explicitly call this out, but I think it's a really good image, and uh, I'm perfectly comfortable saying, yeah. Joseph, as the whole Joseph story, is a great story of Jesus, because it really fits in so many ways. Yeah, Chip. This is a matter of interest. Uh, this experience Pharaoh has with Joseph, mm-hmm. and, jo- and he, ex- he acknowledges Joseph's God, but he's not converted. And the Egyptian pharaohs continue to be polytheists. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. It doesn't seem to be impressed enough to be converted to a model. Uh, a model. Yeah, and. I mean, this is, the, this is one of those different cultural things about the Old Testament. The Old, the Old Testament is monotheistic in the sense that there is one God that created heaven and earth and is all-powerful. But it is not monotheistic in the sense that we are often monotheistic. And that we will say, it's very normal for us to say, there is one God, everything else is not a God at all. The ancient Israelites would have recognized and would have used the word God for other beings. They were all to be seen as essentially either subservient or rebellious, wicked things, but they were all lower than the one true God. For, so for, for Joseph's brothers, all right, what are, what are they supposed to do? Are they going to say to the Pharaoh, or is even Joseph supposed to say to the Pharaoh, these other gods don't exist? Joseph didn't believe that. I don't, I don't think he did. What Joseph would have believed is, the God of Israel is the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, and the judge of all the earth. Abraham believed that. Right? When he talked to God, right, before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said that. You're the judge of all the earth. All right? um, the Pharaoh does Pharaoh doesn't believe that. But Pharaoh can totally go, you know what? There must be a God that's blessing you. And you say you worship that God. He can recognize that. And I'm sure Joseph would have said, you should worship this God. All right? But the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament, is not monotheist in the same way that we think of as monotheist. All right? And by the time you get to the New Testament... Right? Um, what's what's the general view of things? Well, are there other gods? Yes, they're all wicked. All those gods in the nations are wicked. Only the God of Israel is the true God that created heavens and earth. And so, over time, it becomes more explicitly monotheist, so that Paul can say, "You shouldn't, absolutely, should not worship any of those other gods." Now, in the Old Testament, you have that as well, right? As a part of the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall not have any other gods before me. All right? They are not supposed to worship these other gods. And God says, the, and this is in Deuteronomy, I, those gods, those are for the other nations to worship. You're my people. You worship me. All right? And so God says, I am exclusively the one who's supposed to receive worship from you. But once again, there's an assumption there, all right, of those other nations have gods, and they exist. They're just weaker, and you're not to worship them. And so, it's just a very different world 
than us, I think, in terms of their assumptions. Any other thoughts? Okay. Well, then let's, let's be dismissed, shall we? Frank, will you pray for us, please?